What does it mean Messiah matters? It means apart from him we can do nothing. It means he is the way, the truth, and the life. Yeshua is the only way of salvation. He is everything. We have to have the Tanakh to know the Messiah. But we have to have the Messiah to know the Tanakh. Without Messiah, we have nothing. Basically, it's all about the Messiah. I can't play my arms. It's Wednesday, March 7th, 2018. This is Messiah Matters number 209. Still holding fast to the five solas, my name is Caleb Hag, and with me, the man who works on abstracts as long as he works on the entire paper, Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? How's it going, man? Hey, it's all about closing the deal, closing the sale, man. <laughs> Rob, Rob emails me five days before he's going to submit an abstract. An abstract's supposed to be like a couple sentences about a paper. It took him five days to compose that thing. No, they said it's like, I think it's like, is it two, 250 words or less or like 500 words or less or something? I don't Dude, know. I can, it's like a tweet. It's seriously no, like, it, yeah, it's, yeah, <clears throat> they, they upped the amount of, they doubled the amount of words. You can now tweet 250 characters, I think. It's like a tweet. You're right, then. If you, no, well, 250 words, not 250 characters. It's still... Yeah, but if I, that's why I try to use Paleo Hebrew in my abstract because <laughs> each character is a whole word. Ah, there you go. Yes, nice. Well, ox hand hat, hat. <laughs> uh, fence, uh, teeth, ear. Yes. I. All right. Uh, welcome everyone to Messiah Matters, and welcome everyone in the chat room. Looks like we have a good showing so far, which is always good to see. And uh, I'd like to say hello to everyone. Listening on Torah Resource Radio, whether it's through TuneIn or whatever medium you might be listening to. Uh, the Messiah Matters Show is brought to you by TorahResource.com. Go to Torah Resource and find what? all sorts of things. Uh, Torah Resource exists to provide biblically-based education for disciples of Yeshua. We do that through all sorts of different things, this show being one of them. But uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. And actually, for everyone who requested my... Uh, my Passover Haggadah last last week, I sent it. I sent a direct link to everybody. But uh, for everyone else who did not receive a direct link, you can go to TorahResource.com, uh, hover over in. Uh, let's see here. Hover over Library, go down to Articles, and then find Passover Haggadah. Do this in remembrance of me. There's actually two Haggadahs in there. One is produced by uh, someone else, and it's a little bit more traditional. And then one is mine, and mine is the one that says, do this in remembrance of me. So um, the one that I have produced is much less traditional. In fact, I've taken up almost, I would say, a significant portion of the tradition, and I've put in a lot of scripture reading. And Borderline that, heretical. Well, exactly. That is correct. And for those in the chat room... In some... Her, heretical in some quarters. That's right. Uh, Michael has just posted a link of it in the, uh, in the chat room for those in there, if you haven't gotten it already. Um, and, uh, uh, Messiah Matters, rather, Messiah Matters is also brought to you by the generous support of our listeners. If you'd like to help, uh, this show continue on, you can do so by going to Torah Resource and clicking the donate button in the toolbar. Uh, then you can, uh, p once you go to there and add it to cart and figure out all, you know, put in all your information, you can add a note. And if you are donating to help uh, further this, uh, this broadcast, then we would appreciate it if you would put it in the notes, because we always like seeing when people are, are, um, are donating specifically for the show. So uh, do that. Uh, if the link I'm seeing in the I'm seeing in the chat room, yes. If the link is not working, just go to torresource.com, and then hover over library, and then I think you could actually search for it too. Okay, with all that out of the way, uh, 
give us a call. Comment line. You will not talk to us. You just get an answering machine, 253-465-3205. We love hearing from everybody, and we do hear from people often. You can also give us a uh, shoot us an email. Give us your comments and uh, your suggestions for topics. Uh, my email is chegg, that's C-H-E-G-G, at torresource.com. And I've noticed that when people send me emails, if they don't send them to uh, Rob as well, he says, well, they sent it to you. You have to respond. So why don't you all give Rob a, uh, a CC Rob on it, too. His is yeah. almost exactly the same as mine. It's rvanhoff at torresource.com. Uh, two Fs in Vanhoff. All right. Well, with that out of the way, check it out. I was... This was placed on my desk <laughs> a good uh, a good half an hour or so before we came on air, and um, yeah, it, this is the Trinity Review. It's called the Trinity Review. This is uh, it, this is also in your show notes. Uh, at least I didn't put a link to it, but I I gave you um, uh, I gave you the number that it is. I think you can find these on uh, the website www.trinityfoundation.org. Um, this is number three forty six. 2018, January, February, 2018, that is. And uh, the name of the article is uh, False Light After 500 Years by Brad K. Gazelle. That's G-S-E-L-L. Let me read this to you, uh, at least a little bit of it. Uh, And this is rather long, so I'll try to sum up a little bit um, as I go along. Move this over here. Okay, here we go. Uh, With prayers of repentance and lamentation for past divisions, the World Communion of Reformed Churches, that's the WCRC, met with leaders of the Roman Catholic Pontifical Council for Promoting Church Unity. That's the PCPCU. The Lutheran World Federation, the LWF, the World Methodist Council, the WMC, and others in a major ecumenical event. The ceremony held on July 5th, 2017, was to mark the association of the WCRC with the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification. So I want to set the stage for you here. What has happened is uh, the the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church put together a document um, in 1999. Uh, it was a declaration, and it was affirmed, I think, by the Methodist Foundation in 2006, now, in 2017, um, in July of 2017, uh, during the, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, they decided that uh, all these groups, Catholic, Methodist, Lutheran, uh, Presbyterian, uh, these major groups should get together in, uh, in Germany at, uh, let's see here, where the ceremony was held in the Stradkirk, that is the town church, in Wittenberg, Germany, where Martin Luther once preached. So this sounds good, right? Well, listen to this. The action of signing this joint declaration was a was in effect a repudiation of these Reformation principles. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Solus Christus, and Sola Die, Dio Gloria. Uh, the joint declaration declares that the, that the condemnations found in the Protestant confessions and the canons and decrees of the Roman Catholic Council of Trent are still valid today and thus have a church-dividing effect. However, the remainder of the document declares that the churches have come to a new insight and that the divisive questions and condemnations are now seen in a new light. By appropriating insights of recent biblical studies and drawing on modern investigations of the history of theology and dogma post-Vatican II, ecumenical dialogue has led to a notable convergence concerning justification. Because of this new consensus, the corresponding doctrinal condemnation of the 16th of the 16th century do not apply to today's partner. Caleb, when you put consensus, are they putting that in scare yes. quotes? Yes. Okay. Cool. So, uh, well, uh, where could, is that online where people can read that article in its entirety? It is, and um, I, I believe it's at the uh, TrinityFoundation.org. Uh, so basically, the what I'm getting from this is the WCRC, the WMC, and the LWF have all basically given up effectively uh, in totality 
that is, on Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, Solus Christus, and basically the five solos, solas in, in effect. Uh, this is absolutely ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And when I went to the uh, when I went to the uh, WCRC's website to see what churches were a part of the WCRC, it's vast. And I've actually put them in. Um, I've put I've put a link to that page in your show notes. So I would. Uh, yeah, I would. Oh, and uh, the PDF that I am talking about, the link has now been posted by Torah Resource in the chat room. Thank you, Michael. Well, I went to their website too, and they they're they're citing uh, an article, John Piper on John Piper, and final justification by words. Here, did we talk? Did we talk about that one already? No, but that's another one. The Trinity Review that was, did that was December issue issue. They tore Piper apart in that. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure if Piper responded or not, but, uh, anyway, I, I think that this shows, you know, and I talked to my dad about this article. I think this shows that the liberal, um, the liberal church. And when I say that, you know, we got the, we got the, uh, the, what is it? The Methodist church right down the uh, United Methodist, I believe it is right down the road. And they, they're super liberal in, uh, biblically, yep. you know, they, they're ordain, ordaining homosexuals. I mean, all sorts of things. This is bad, right? So why would they care about theological doctrine? Right? I mean, what's, what's, who cares? They've given up on, They've given up on the inerrancy of, of the scriptures uh, for quite some time, right? And when you throw that out, who cares? Mm. But, you know, the, uh, the Presbyterian group in here, um, which one was it? Anyway, the Presbyterians, I believe that they're one of the largest Presbyterian organizations in the United States. So no matter what's going on with the leadership in these in these churches where they're totally off base, what's really scary is that there's people in the pews that are having to listen to this trash. That's a problem. And because the people in the pews are not only listening to this trash, but they're probably buying into it as well. Any thoughts on that? I hit this is out of less left field. Van yeah. Hoff has not heard anything I, about this. No, I haven't read it. And so uh, and when I did pull, because I wanted to get the article. Oh, it's, it's in the chat room. Yeah, I'm seeing the December the December edition looks interesting with all its pages We're talking about uh, Piper's view on on justification and the nature of the the whole debate here. That whether we're talking about the Piper article they're addressing or or it's the guys who wrote an article about Piper's view or what you're talking about of, of reform uh, churches kind of fudging on some of the solas in order to create some kind of ecumenical right. connectivity with the Catholic uh, church. Um, in whatever realm it is, the, the, the issue at stake is def definition of, of important biblical terms. So no one's disagreeing on what the terms are. Right? right? Justification. Okay. Faith. Works. Glorification. Sanctification. Sanctification. Glorif okay. So everybody agrees that these are important words. Right? And everybody agrees that this is scripture. So where does the division come from? The division comes from how people are understanding those terms and how those, how those people's understanding of those terms impact their daily walk, daily right. practice. Right. For those who are Torah pursuant or one Torah, uh, in my opinion, there's less noise. We've removed noise out of the system. But <laughs> we way. but if, we if put think, more noise in. We've well, put, the, we put more noise yeah, in. We've reduced noise when you seek to be obedient to God's will, even in our broken, dispersed world. You you increase coherence with your with your heart, the, a believer's heart. I believe becomes more coherent with the Word of God. So your walk with God becomes stronger. But the noise between you and the traditions you're moving out of increases. And so 
that's where there's that temptation of like, oh man, it would just be easier if I just said, okay, you know what? I'm going to go to the Easter thing and eat the ham. You know, I'm just going to pretend like I don't, you know, no, who we don't do that obviously. But the, the idea is that sometimes it might seem like, wouldn't it just be easier if you just agreed with everything everybody else is doing, right? So that's the noise that increases is on that side. The noise between the reformed groups that we're talking about and the Catholic groups and, and this doesn't have to, none of those people in that uh, dogfight discussion is anchored in a one Torah, you know, pro Torah uh, perspective. They're all, they've all slid a little bit on, okay, it's, it's Sunday instead of Saturday, it's Easter instead of Passover, you know, they've, they've, it's okay to eat whatever you want, you know, and because they've abdicated all these important blessings that God has given us, they're, they're all kind of in, they're not completely equipped to, to really see what they're even arguing about. Right. Except the solas is where we will agree. Uh, that's where the reformers tried to to articulate in as pointed and sharp as possible the principles, biblical principles upon which heavenly principles, right? That upon which they uh, were anchoring or hanging their their willingness to endure prosec- prosec- persecution from from the church right is say look the authority my my love for god the shema is greater is is more important that's the greatest commandment and so if i have to obey god and it's going to cost me my life or it's going to break relationship because some institution of men then so be it and the in catholicism you don't have that you don't have you can't just it's just assumed that you're in this world the yep. Pope's on charge, and you, you know, if you if you question the authority, you're you know they threat you're threatened with excommunication, and then there's like your salvation, your soul. There's no way to stand and say, you know what, my conscience, my God's, my relationship with God is more important. I think uh, all these little things are are part of the dynamics and the moving parts behind what's going on. With that being said, uh, it is my turn to uh, to recommend a book. We've been doing buy, uh, borrow, or bag. We buy, borrow, or bag, and uh, this, is, uh, in light of the conversation that has just ensued, I have uh, decided to. No, I think I've I've actually recommended this book before. Um, I think that this is a fantastic work. It's called "The Five Points of Calvinism: Defined, Defended, and Documented." This book is uh, the one that I'm actually holding right now. I believe is the second edition, um, and it is written by three authors: David Steele. Curtis Thomas, and S. Lance Quinn. This is a fantastic book for multiple reasons. Whether you believe in the doctrines of grace or not uh, is not really the point. And the reason why is because this will give you a solid history of how of the, uh, of the debates that went on uh, about the doctrines of grace and how the five uh, points of Calvinism were formated, were formated and uh, formulated, and then why they were formulated. And it was actually not that that anybody formulated them just randomly. Uh, it uh, actually comes as a response to the five points of Arminius, the five Arminianism. points, yeah, Arminianism. Uh, and so, but then it talks about the biblical standard for them and and uh, where where it all comes from. Uh, just as a reference book in general, this is a must-have on your on your shelf. Um, but beyond that, it's also a, a very good read and something that I think is very informative for both sides of the aisle. Uh, no matter what, uh, no matter if you hold the doctrines of grace or you're wrong, it doesn't matter what side you're on. Uh, you should have this book. So this is definitely a buy. It's the uh, five points of Calvinism. Buy or borrow, I would say, but uh, probably a buy because it's a good reference book. Anytime I have a question, I can always go to this book and, and look. As you can see, I have uh, you know my pieces of paper sticking out in different uh, different places that I've I've tried to keep. Uh, you know, it's really hard to to just recommend books uh, right now for, for me. And the reason why is because everything I'm reading right now has to do with the Eucharist and the Lord's Supper. And so who wants something like, this is what I was reading right before the show, the Eucharist of the early Christians. Nobody wants to read this. 
I mean, this is not a sit down and read this book. You know what I mean? Right. right Unless right. you're doing work on the subject. Uh, you know, the other one that I was reading yesterday, the celebration of the Eucharist, the origin of the right and the development of its interpretation. Also, not a you know, this is not something that you re- sit down and read to your children. Uh, this is a it's kind of a snoozer. <laughs> no offense to the author. No offense to the author. But I should say for me, it's it's riveting. I, I find it uh, extremely informative. Okay, let's move on. Let's get to uh, some main topics here. Now, what do you want to do first there, Mr. Van Hoff? Um, I don't know. Let's oh. do let, – well, we have an email – well, we have a note from uh, one of our listeners that I thought was a good – uh, question and it's something we might come back to in the future, but it's from Asher and we've had good feedback from Asher before. Um, and he, he's not, uh, he doesn't live in the States. He lives, he's, I don't know where, but I think he's from another part of the world, which is really cool. Um, on point too, but he's at, Oh yeah. He knows his stuff. He can talk about Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. Um, but he asked about he he heard a teaching that Elohim never refers to humans, and I don't know if people have heard that that Elohim um, never uh, uh, refers to humans. It only refers to like disembodied beings or something, spirits, right? But, yeah, or something like that. But it, or supernatural beings. <clears throat> Anyway, we get, I was wondering. Well, we, oh, I mean, we, you know, we talked about whether or not we should mention names here on 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 this show, and I mean, the honest truth is, is that uh, a good scholar, well, a scholar, who I would say is you know a, a well known scholar, has has recently written a book, uh, Doctor Heiser, and uh, this is the uh, apparently this is I haven't read the book, and neither is Rob, and so uh, we d- discussed whether or not we should try to. Uh, talk about Heiser's view. And since we haven't read the book, obviously it would be a disservice to, to not only ourselves, but also to Dr. Heiser to even try to attempt to address uh, the work that he's done because he's put in a lot of time and a lot of effort into whether he's right or wrong. He's put in a lot of time and effort to present his, his views. Mm. With that being said, um, we decided obviously not to talk about Dr. Heiser's book because we have it on order, I believe. And we will attempt to read and uh, and digest what he's actually presented. However, what we can do is we can discuss our views of uh, John 10, right? And uh, also, we've talked about uh, right. Genesis 6 before, but uh, John 10, 33 through 38 is really the uh, the portion that we're going to talk that's about what, now. That's an important verse, yeah, because Yeshua cites Psalm 82 to the religious, you know, the Jewish religious leaders. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's important. But regarding Elohim, meaning a disembodied um, being, uh, Moses has called Elohim in Exodus seven, Exodus four, and Exodus seven. Moses called Elohim. Um, Jacob wrestles with an Ish, and then uh, and it says his strives with Elohim, and then Ish, hang on in, for for those who don't know, Ish is man. Uh, Man in Hebrew. So he right. wrestles with a man, Ish, but then it's called right. Elohim. Right. And then Hosea 12, the prophet reiterates this and says, Jacob wrestled with Elohim. And then in the parallel, he wrestled with a Malach, an angel. So you have Ish, Malach, and Elohim all pointing to the same uh, the same thing. And another is, uh, you, you know, look at... Genesis 18 and 19, for example, the, the Anashim, the three Anashim come to visit Abraham. Then it, later it calls them Malachim. And then one of them is yod Hevave, because it right. says two of the Malachim continue on. I'm, I'm conflating the story, but it's, if you look at Genesis 18 and 19. So the question is, what do we do with that? And then what do you do with like Laban when Laban's running around like a chicken without a head? Like, where's my Elohim? Who stole my Elohim? Right. Right. He's talking about an idol. Right. He's talking about some sort of the thing called the teraphim, which is some sort of object that he called Elohim. So it's not Elohim has a range of possibilities. Right. Um, And then, of course, in Exodus, it refers to the judges. um, And that that's pretty clear. And that's how the rabbis understand it. Um, 
I know that maybe uh, some scholars will disagree with that, but it, it just makes sense. And when you read Psalm 82, which maybe we'll read the whole thing today, and we can talk about it, we understand why Yeshua is citing Psalm 82 to Jewish leaders in, in uh, chapter 10 of the Gospel of John. Um, in other words, the, the reason Yeshua cites that to them is a testimony against them. Um, and it, it wouldn't make sense for Yeshua to cite Psalm 82 against them if it had no application. Um, so hang on, let's, let's read this real quick. Okay, so uh, just the, first of all, Psalm 82.6 is the verse that will be quoted. He says, uh, in 82.6 it says, I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Now this is, we can talk about this, but, but uh, actually I think that the Net Bible uh, wraps this whole thing up beautifully. Um, but now let's read uh, John 10, 33 through 38. I'm in the NASB. Start, but, start with 31, <clears throat> if you would. Okay. Give me just That's a second. That's important. That's important to start thirty-one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Yeshua answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? <laughs> uh, what a great response. <laughs> oh, man. It's not because of sin. Right, right. They're, right. They're, he's, he's healing people. He's well, it's like... a jab. He's jabbing at them. He's like he's he's kind of he's prodding at him, even though that they're picking up stones to. Anyway, I, I love it. Uh, the Jews answered him, "It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God." Right. Okay. That's uh, the core thing. Yeah, and you you make yourself God. The theon. Yeshua answered them, has it not been written in your Torah? I said, you are gods. It's interesting that he, this is a great, this is a perfect uh, verse to show that the law can refer to not only the the Torah, but also to the entire uh, Tanakh, the entire Old Testament. And this isn't, he's not saying like it's not his Torah. He's just saying in your own. Yeah, in your own works. In in your own tradition, you know, what you will agree with me on. Because right. they're not agreeing with him on his uh, what he's saying, obviously. Okay, so it says, uh, you were gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, uh, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, Believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. So, um, right now, this is this is still misunderstood, right? Uh, we oh yeah, that, back yeah. in the back when we were doing the Robin Caleb show, which is you know a different, just a little bit different format than this show. Uh, we we had played clips of Alaro. Uh, who's this this guy in in Israel that a lot of messianics for some reason have globbed onto? But he basically says, yeah, Yeshua didn't claim to be God. He he claimed that we're all gods, that all Jews are gods. Yeah, or some weird. Yeah, something strange. Just so like weird. That. Yeah. Um. So do you want me? To, do you want to expound on this, or do you want me just to read the net note? Um. Well, you know what? It's important to go through the psalm. We don't have to do that today. Um. But I, I really like, see, I hadn't looked at the net note and then Caleb and I were chatting about this and, and Caleb read me the net note and I was like, that basically says Sums exactly, it up. Uh, I, I think it's right on and I'd never heard it until yesterday. Um, and so we might, we might add or, or highlight certain points of it, but the, the, the beef, you know, the, the beef of it, of it is, is all good. So the editor of this is uh, Harris W. Hall. Um, and then, of course, the editor of the entire Net Bible New Testament notes is Dr. Daniel Wallace. Um, so this is what it says. It says, uh, Jesus will pick up on the term sons of the Most High in 1036, where he refers to himself as the Son of God. The psalm was understood in rabbinic circles as an attack on unjust judges who, though they have been given the title gods because of their quasi-divine function of exercising judgment, are just as mortal as other men. What is the argument here? It is often thought to be as follows. 
if it was an Old Testament practice to refer to men like the judges as gods and not blaspheme, why did the Jewish authorities object when this term was applied to Jesus? This really doesn't seem to fit the context, however, since if that were the case, Jesus would not be making any claim for divinity for himself over and above any other human being. And this is exactly what we've heard other people in the Messianic movement try to say. Therefore, he would not be subject to the charge of blasphemy. Rather, this is evidently a case of arguing from the lesser to the greater, a common form of rabbinic argument. The reason the Old Testament judges could be called gods is because they were vehicles of the word of God. 1035. But granting that premise, Yeshua des Jesus deserves much more than they to be called God. He is the word incarnate whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world to save the world, 1036. In light of the pro uh, prologue to the Gospel of John, it seems this interpretation would have been most natural for the author. It is, it, if it is permissible to call men gods because they were the vehicles of the word of God, how much more permissible is it to use the word God of him who is the word of God? Yeah, I, I think that's well said. <clears throat> right. It, once again, what what I love about this is that Yeshua, I, I mean, obviously, obviously, he's going to have the great answers all the time. But what he does in this is that he says, well, why are you, why are you uh, going to, you know, for what work of the Father have I done that you're going to stone me for? Which is, he's prodding them, right? He's kind of, I don't know, he's kind of t playing with them still. And then... He uh, <laughs> and then he declares himself deity in a wonderful response. Right within his response, he declares himself deity once again. It's fantastic, absolutely wonderful. Okay, what else do you want to say about about that, uh, Rob? Well, this is this is uh, apparently during Hanukkah, right? Because right. back in twenty three, it says it's winter. Yeshua is walking in the in the temple, right? And this is all uh, going on there. And so, when people pick up stones to stone him, they are actually acting as if they are judges, right? right. They've actually they've actually uh, uh, accused, you know, judged and condemned, and now we're going to execute, you know, all in one swoop. witness, judge, jury, and execution. And and there's a, a really good, you know, I wonder if, if we're supposed to, to notice this, that in verse 33, where it says, you, uh, Anthropos, being the man, um, poies sauton, you are poieo, you make yourself theon. And the word poieo is the word to do that Yeshua recites back to them in verse 37. Um, if I do ta erga tu patrosmu, if I do the works of, of my father, don't uh, or if I don't do the works of my father, don't, don't believe, believe me. me. Right. If I do them, right, um, you don't have to even believe me, but believe the works. So the idea is this, <clears throat> and this gets back to Psalm eighty-two. The the judgment that Psalm 82 or the, the roasting of the human judges who'd been entrusted with the Torah, they'd been entrusted with the Torah, right? Go back to Deuteronomy 1, right? The, the just judges, they can't take a bribe, right? They can't show respecter of persons. They can't, um, you know, anything. They have to hear the whole matter out. And then when they give a ruling, the mishpat, it's not theirs. It says the mishpat is Elohim's. So a just judge, when a just judge gives a ruling, it's it's from Elo, that ruling is Elo is Elohim's word, right? It's Elohim's mishpat, not of that judge. So that the the word is in absolute perfect integrity with the will of God. So what is done on earth is actually perfectly uh, expressing what is Elohim's will. In the same way, Yeshua is saying, when I do something, when Yeshua does a work, it's not his own work. He's doing the work of Elohim, 
right? That there's no, there's no gap. There's no noise between the father and the son. There's no misinterpretation. Oh, oh, I thought you said go left and I, I, and, and you said go right. Oh, there's no error. There's no misunderstanding, no miscommunication. There's no noise. There is perfect coherence. So when you, and so that is what is at stake here. Yeshua says, I am the father are one that, and, and, the challenge that it puts for Jewish uh, legal system is it's kind of like, uh, what do we do? Kind of a little bit like, you know, deer in the headlights sort of thing. Right. Because they know that the call, they know that Moses was called Elohim, right? They know that the, the judges of Israel, well, what are they called in, uh, in Malachi at the beginning of the second temple period when the prophet Malachi is saying, you Kohanim, you priests, you're gonna, you're offering blemished animals. You know, you're you're twisting Torah. You're causing people to stumble in the Torah. It says in chapter two of Malachi. My covenant with Levi was that people would seek Torah from their lips, and that he he would return. He would turn many from transgression, and and that he would lead them in truth. Right. Mm-hmm. And and that they are his angels. So the Malachim, right? So you have. This word again, you have the word, well, they're, co- they're priests, but they're like, they're, they're also angels. They're called angels. They can be called Elohim. And it doesn't have to do with this, well, are they disembodied beings or is it right. supernatural? That's us trying to add another word to try to make sense of it. When in fact, if you're just reading it Hebrew, you're challenged to, you're stretched beyond what you understand, which is what we're supposed to do with scripture, right? We're supposed to be confronted with God's truth and by his spirit in us, we, we have faith and we, we know we're his children, even though we don't know, we don't see the end. We trust that he's our father. He sees the end. Yeshua here doesn't have that conundrum. Yeshua is at complete coherence, complete unity with the father. The will done in Yeshua's life is the father's will. And, And Yeshua is absolutely, um, the word made flesh, right? I mean, it's, it's, um, and so that's why Psalm 82 is totally applicable here because Psalm 82 is the, is the, the clear, um, is it a, a denouncing, but it's a row. I think of it as a roast of the, of the human judges because they've neglected the poor. Right. They've justified the wicked. I mean, maybe sometime we can go back and just read through, uh, Psalm 82 line by line. And uh, Elohim is not so. Elohim, judgments from Elohim are always true. They always cohere, pardon me, with his character. Righteous, just, holy, loving, right? Uh, Compassionate, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in truth, right? All those things that he is. His his actions, his judgments always reflect his his character. There's no no loss of integrity. There's no... uh, so it's always uh, uh, go ahead. So so Tim in the in the uh, chat room says the common denominator here is they all collectively acted under the authority of God, right? I agree with that. So anyway, the problem I, with the the problem with the prophets is that that in the whole Tanakh, as you look at the history of Israel, <clears throat> the judges are ju- they they just they lose they become corrupt. The system becomes corrupt. Even in Haggai, Haggai or, or Habakkuk chapter one. The Torah is, is getting corrupted by the judges. The mishpat isn't getting out to the people, and the people suffer. So they're not really getting God's word. What they're getting is uh, rulings from leaders that have been entrusted with the word of God but are not faithful to it. They're rather faithful to their own motivations, their own personal gain. And so the people suffer because of it. Okay, I think that we should move on. Uh, we're Yeah. We're, uh, yeah. Uh, let's see here. So... I'm debating whether or not I should open up another document for this or not. We got another uh, email. This is a great email. Uh, and actually, we know this person well. Uh, met him face-to-face. And uh, just a, a blessed brother in the Lord. This continues on the uh, the conversation that we've had basically overarching the past, I don't know, three or four shows. I made a comment um, that I don't believe that the act of communion, the um, that is the... Uh, 
what is called the Eucharist or, you know, taking the bread and the juice or the wine ceremonially on a Sunday or whatever. And, uh, you know, I don't believe that this is, is biblical. I think that this was a misunderstanding or a twisting of uh, command to celebrate the Passover. And uh, this stirred up, uh, obviously, some controversy and uh, kind of hit the uh, hornet's nest, which is fine. That's that's great. Uh, and it's brought a lot of good conversation out of it, actually. So this, uh, our dear brother in the Lord, he writes, uh, uh, well, actually, in this email was a lot longer. So there's he made three main points. This is the first point, and I'm, we'll talk about this first point today. Uh, the first point is new ritual instituted. Uh, a, when I read Luke 22 and 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34, I definitely see that a very special ritual was newly instituted by Yeshua. He said, do this in remembrance of me. B, in the gospel accounts, Luke seems to emphasize the Lord's Supper above anything else in his narrative of the Passover. If you were to read Luke, uh, only Luke, when the Lord says, do this in remembrance of me, taking the cup and eating the bread would be what needed to be done to remember his sacrifice, not, necess- not necessarily the Passover meal. When the same words are repeated in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four through 25 by Paul, the do this in remembrance of me is said after the wine and after the bread. It seems that each part of the ritual was to be done to remember him. And C, Matthew and Mark also emphasize the ritual, and Mark even points out that all drank from the same cup, not their individual cups. It seems like an out-of-the-ordinary de- detail is pointed out for us. Now, I've t- uh, that's the end of, the, of, the, of this section of the email, and uh, wonderfully stated and, and written. Um, I, I do disagree, uh, but it was. It, I think that this is... Uh, the reason I like this comment so much is because this is something that kind of hung me up as well, right? We see that we see in uh, during in both the First Corinthians passage and in the Luke passage, it's there seems to be this emphasis on the bread, or on the matzah, and on the wine, right? And uh, we see this in all of the uh, in all of the accounts of the synoptics that he took bread, he took wine, and he blessed them, uh, so on and so forth. Now, the only time that you have do this in remembrance of me, this phrase is in is in 1 Corinthians and in Luke 22. And so this was very, uh, I don't know, this was kind of an interesting uh, thing that I, you know, I, I was wondering what's going on here. Why exactly is he emphasizing bread and wine if he is talking about the, the Passover? And it is an excellent question. Let's read this real quick. I think it's good to give people context. Uh, Luke 22, I'm going to start in 15 and read through 20. It says, And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Pascha with you before I suffer. There's tons of debate about what this is, uh, whether or not it's the meal, whether or not it's the day, whether or not it's the lamb. I believe it's the lamb, and I think that uh, Petrie has proven this from the context uh, and how he continues to uh, reference Pascha, right? Go in. Uh, it was the day that the Pascha was sacrificed, right? And, and then it just keeps using this word Pascha. It seems that uh, it's it's certainly referring to the lamb in this in this specific context. Continuing on, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, "Take this, and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes." And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Uh, And then he goes on to state that that someone at the table is going to betray him. So this is the passage in question. We also have the passage in 1 Corinthians. Because of the order of the books within the apostolic scriptures, that is the New Testament, many might think that Luke wrote first. That is not the case. Luke wrote after Paul. So Paul probably has the first account of this. Uh, I shouldn't say probably. Paul has the first account of this. So back to our our, uh, listener's question. Um, Would you like to jump in here? Well, I'm just, I don't know if it's, if you want me to, uh, if now's a good time, but I'm just looking at the use of the word this, right? Because in Luke 22, 15, this Passover, so tauta, which is a, in Greek is this, demo, what we call a demonstrative pronoun. Right. 
meaning near, like this. You're pointing to something that's in the uh, proximity to the people there, right? To this this Passover. And then he says, take this, tauta, with the cup. And then he said, bread, this, right? This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Um, And then this cup. Uh, And so I'm wondering if, I mean, that it seems really, really tied. um, Right. So we to to this word, this we've talked in uh, in previous shows, recent previous shows uh, of Messiah Matters on the idea that. Or I've talked about this, at least. That a lot of the ritual that we see within a traditional Passover Seder today. Is, was most likely, and I think that there's good evidence for this, was actually Greco-Roman banquet custom that was adopted by various Jewish sects. Now, a lot of people have a huge problem with this. I don't know why, but they do. Um, the idea, you know, we hear this a lot in the debates against uh, Greek primacy for the writing of the apostolic scriptures. Oh, well, you know, the, the argument goes something like this. Well, no Jew in the first century would be speaking Greek or would want to write in Greek. Well, that's simply not true. Greek was oh, the dominant. Yeah. Greek was the dominant language, and have only, so much Jewish literature in Greek. It's right, it's, and it's and not so. only that, but you. But what we see is that even within the cultural realm, uh, the Judaisms of the first century uh, adopted a lot of Greco-Roman culture, and there's nothing wrong with that. Contrary to popular belief, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so in Greek, in the same way, you know, we have the Babylonian names for months, right? Right. That was an appropriation. Um, it's like, uh, Esther, right. Hadassah being called Esther, right. There's, there's interaction with larger culture that is not transgressing of, of God's will. God Uh, wants people to communicate with each other. He wants cultures to share and, but he wants it to, it to be in righteousness and holiness, of course. Cameron Fletcher asks, could you guys speak on the difference with the Greek and the word bread for Luke 22? You're talking about the word artos. Uh, uh, Joachim Jeremiah, Joachim Jeremiah in his, um, I would call it probably one of the most standard Eucharistic books on the market today, even though it's old. Uh, he wrote the Eucharistic words of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, he deals with uh, the objection that artos means bread and not matzah, and he does it oh, thoroughly. Yeah. There's, there's, there's absolutely that's, no uh, there, the the showbread in the in the temple in the Septuagint is also call, called artos, even though it had to be uh, unleavened bread. Uh, artos is used constantly throughout the uh, Tanakh for unleavened bread as well. Not only that, in Deuteronomy sixteen three. The matzah is specifically called lechemoni, the bread of right. affliction, and right. and that's that is uh, artos, right. right? It's called artos in the Greek. So, don't let. And we've heard people, we've heard messianic kind of oriented people teach that. Oh, this this was uh, this wasn't a Passover because they used the word yeah. artos. It's total so nonsense. Don't, yeah, don't uh, don't follow, don't bite that lure. Okay, back to um, back to this custom. Um, so basically what uh, our friend is asking here, and, and let, let me read this first part, just point A first. When I read Luke 22 and 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34, I definitely see that a very special ritual was newly instituted by Yeshua. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, part B, he says, in the gospel accounts, Luke seems to emphasize the Lord's Supper above anything else in his narrative of the Passover. If you were to read only Luke, blah, 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 and so on, so taking the cup and eating the bread, would be what needed to be done to remember his sacrifice. This is a very important point that our friend has made here, that uh, he emphasizes the bread and the wine. In Greco-Roman custom, and this is extremely well documented, uh, when the daipnon, which is the Greek word for banquet, when the daipnon began, that was the first part of the the, uh, Greco-Roman banquet, 
and it was the dinner portion of the banquet, uh, the whole thing got kicked off with a ceremonial cup of wine. And that ceremonial cup of wine was dedicated to the good deity. Um, and then once the Dapnon was concluded and uh, there was this interim that between the Dapnon and then what was called the symposium or also the philosophical portion of the meal, another cup of wine was dedicated and it was dedicated to Zeus. And then everyone drank from that cup of wine. Now, I'm not suggesting by this that uh, Yeshua was doing something pagan. Rather, what I'm suggesting is that the Greco-Roman custom that we see 400 years before Yeshua comes onto the scene had been adopted into Jewish, uh, various Jewish sects as table custom, just as I'm going to look different when I eat dinner in America, as opposed to someone in Japan is going to look different when they eat dinner. It's culture, right? And these cultural aspects had come into the uh, the the banquets of the of the uh, Jewish sects. Wine was not something that you had on a regular basis. Now, this is debatable. Obviously, everything that I'm saying is certainly debatable. But uh, it seems as though the Qumran sect might have had wine at every dinner. Um, and why they did this, they might have seen themselves as special and that this was a, uh, a Messianic banquet every dinner that they had. Nonetheless, uh, it, we, don't, we don't believe that Yeshua was uh, carrying wine around with himself everywhere that they went and drinking wine with every dinner. Rather, wine was specific to special occasions, to banquets, and to, um, and to festivals. This is an important point. And the reason why is because bread represents the entire meal. We see this even in the Gospels, right? He takes bread, he blesses it. When when the 5,000, when he's feeding the 5,000, he has fish and he has bread. He lifts it up, he, may, he gives a blessing over the bread, and then he breaks it and they pass everything out, okay? So he blesses the bread, which represents the entire meal. The wine represents the, the banquet. And so when he takes bread and he takes wine, it is my belief, and I'm trying to argue this in my thesis, when he takes bread and wine, he is it is a representation of the Passover meal. Another thing that we another thing that would support this is that it's is that his declaration of abstinence. When he says, uh, "I've earnestly desired to eat this Pascha with you, and I will not eat of it again," what is he talking about? He's talking about. Well, it could go either way. You could argue that it's talking about the lamb specifically, or that it's talking about the entire meal. But then he's, he takes the cup and he says, I will not drink of this, uh, of this cup again until I'm with you in the kingdom. And once again, this represents the entire meal. So I, it is my opinion that the bread and the wine are a representation. They represent the entire banquet meal of the Passover. And this is why emphasis is put on it. It's not that he's emphasizing specific bread and specific wine and that you're supposed to put a ceremony around these things. It's that he's saying this meal... And we get this, obviously, from the abstinence as well. I, I, I will not eat of it again until I'm in the, in the kingdom. What is it? Well, no matter which way you slice it, if it's the Passover sacrifice or whether or not it's the meal proper, um, it is referring to the Passover. Okay, I have a side question. Yes. Because Paul, in, in that 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, and this is going to be true whether you believe Yeshua instituted a new tradition that could be every day or once a month or only annually. Right. The, the question I want to ask really doesn't pertain to that. It pertains to Paul saying you need to take this seriously because you need to properly discern the, the Lord's body here. Okay. Is it possible for me to understand the re, uh Messiah's redemptive work on my behalf in its fullness if I do not have the narrative of, of the Abrahamic promise, bondage, harsh bondage in, uh, in Egyptian slavery and God's redemption of Israel at the hand of Moses. The time in the wilderness and the, the the promised land if or are, are those inextricably tied together and by Yeshua instituting this whatever he's instituting on Passover of his suffering 
and that we're supposed to proclaim the Lord's death and that we're baptized in, that somehow we participate in his death so that we participate also, we share in his resurrection life. And this is all framed, even Paul himself frames this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, chapter 10, in terms of the Exodus narrative. Right. And he says that it's written for us. Is it incumbent upon believers to have the Exodus story, the rehearsing of the whole covenant Exodus story, as part of their understanding of, of what God's doing and their place in it? I think that everything is tied together. So in other words, in Exodus 5, is it 5 or is it 6? Uh, it's Which, 4. I apologize. It's 4. Exodus 4. In Exodus, do we hear 3? No. <laughs> no. In Exodus, uh, in Exodus uh, 4. Um, the circumcision ref- piece? Right. It refers to, yeah. it refers to um, uh, Israel as, a, as his firstborn son. Right, as his firstborn, it refers to uh, not son, but as his firstborn, I believe, and it refers to, um, and then it talks about the Abrahamic covenant, right? And then what happens? All of a sudden, it breaks, and uh, he tells Moses to go down to Egypt, and he's going to talk to Pharaoh and all these kind of things. And then all of a sudden, the narrative breaks. Moses is on his way down, and God comes to kill him. It's just the a wrath of God is like yeah, they, it's like. Coming. And and when you're reading this, it's it's like, what is going on here? The scholar solution is, oh, it's a different source. They just had to, right, they had this right. other story. They right. had this alternative tradition. And they had to like, well, we have to put it here. So cut scenes, right? From right. meanwhile, back at, you know, on but, the way to Egypt. But it's very important because what happens is, is that God comes to kill uh, Moses. His wife realizes what's happening. And she goes and she circumcises their son who's uncircumcised. And this shows that Moses was not allowed to go and be the instrument that God would use to enact the Exodus Rep- represent story. the Abrahamic prom, uh, right? Covenant, and promise. and then what what happens is that the Exodus to to partake in the Exodus sacrifice or in the uh, sacrifice of the Passover, you have to be circumcised. Why? Because the Exodus cannot be disassociated from the promise of the coming Messiah that in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So it can't be separated from Abraham's life of faith. Right. Uh, either, and right? And, and the faith in the, the in the coming Messiah, right? And then what happens in, in the Last Supper? In the Last Supper, he takes, actually, let's read it. He takes at the uh he takes the cup in in uh well, well, I'm in I'm in First Corinthians now in twenty five, in eleven twenty five, he says, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In other words, the new covenant is the Torah written on the heart. We have the Torah written on the heart as soon as we have true faith in the Messiah Yeshua. And that's what? elsewhere in the Bible. It's talked, that's described as the circumcision of the heart. Exactly. In, De- in Deuteronomy. So we, right? partake, we partake in the, in, the Paso- in the true Passover sacrifice if our hearts are, are circumcised. And that's when the new covenant comes in. All of this is one big story. It's all the same story. The 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 Abrahamic covenant, faith in the Messiah Yeshua, that Exodus out from slavery to uh, to unrighteousness to sin, and being brought through the water and up onto the other side, a new creation as slaves to righteousness now, and then the ongoing struggle of sanctification. Right that picture of the person falling up the the escalator right every once in a while you might make a little bit of progress and and we see this in the wilderness right they keep screwing up they keep screwing up but finally there is a portion of Israel that comes now into the land and receives the blessing and this is the story of our salvation right we were in darkness we were slaves to wickedness and now we come out we're slaves to righteousness with a mighty hand and outstretched arm god brings us through the water we're new creations and now we're on this journey of sanctification all of these things are the exact same story so whether or not a person has you know whether or not a person before the messiah came was looking to uh, see that specific picture or whether or not a person afterwards has specifically the exodus narrative in mind they're both the same story. 
the Messiah's death and, and uh, resurrection and ascension is the same story as the Exodus story, just in two different forms. And so I think that we have to have at least one of them in, uh, in mind when we celebrate this. But Thoughts? even Paul, like you just qu- quoted, I mean, you basically gave a summary of Paul's arguments in Romans 5 and 6, right? right. Uh, I mean, while you're talking about and then in 1 Corinthians. And so Paul's using that to argue, even when he's writing to Gentiles. He's, he's assuming they know the story. And I think it's important. One of the, the things we should at least be aware of for those who are going to advocate a uh, higher frequency of celebration of what they want to, uh, of what they believe Yeshua is instituting here, whether it's, you know, weekly, monthly, or whatever, that there's, I think there's a danger of things that follow the same suit of like, well, we're part of a group that has separated, you know, it's Sunday, not Sabbath, right? It's Easter, not Passover. And th- these things that happened where there's this distance to where else you kind of have this new institution that can think and have all sorts of theological <clears throat> imaginative um, teachings, but yet at the same time is not anchored in the actual coherence of the of the story. And so that's why I lean, personally, I I lean more towards the side. If the if we're assuming there's there's potential for disagreement, I lean more to the side that this is a Passover meal. He's giving instruction on ful- what the comprehensive Passover meal means, right? In light of the suffering uh, of Yeshua and then His resurrection to come. And that they're to they're to look back and they're to see, see the whole story now, the whole of salvation history, as expressed, and that they're not to therefore be, do some new thing and new religion with new calendars and and new practices, but rather enjoy the richness and the fatness of the of, and the nourishment of the whole spiritual tradition, and let that be informing what it means to be redeemed children of God. And but but that was not easy to hold. Why did it split off in the centuries? It wasn't easy to hold that position because right. you had we have a lot of Jews that come to faith, right? But they, they but and then you have like the rise of the rabbinic tradition that is going to say no, right? We have our own. We institute our own rules for community, and we institute our own ways of doing things and laws pertaining to who will interact with and who not. And so you have a legal system that develops that becomes a cornerstone for how people imagine themselves, what it means to be to be Jewish or to be part of Israel. And then on the church side, you have another legal, which becomes the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church, another kind of legal tradition with its own hierarchy of priests and supersessionist kind of things. And and our challenge today, and the Reformers broke off, they're like, at least with those solas, back to come full circle here, they were kind of try to distance themselves from both, realize that they needed the, to lean on the Jewish scribal tradition to establish the canon of the Tanakh, rather than, right, they separated, they say, we're not going to accept this canon that the church has handed down in Latin and and and, and the Septuagint, or the, uh, the Vulgate and everything, rather we need to look to the Hebrew learning of the Jewish scribes, which is in alignment to Yeshua in Matthew 23, the scribes, he mentioned scribes and Pharisees. So we see advances that are so important 500 years ago, roughly, with the, the moves of the Reformation. And Caleb, I think that, uh, you know, I, if that's arrogant for us to, for me to think so, but I think we're in that same spirit of the Reformers, and we are, we're carrying the torch forward to its next logical growth, right? right. The next logical growth is not oh, let's cave back in, let's cave in on, on the difficult things and, and try to reunite, that's, we would have to question our motives on that. What, what, do we, what does it cost? Rather, we're saying the whole counsel of Scripture, understanding Yeshua in terms of the Abrahamic covenant and the, the subsequent uh, covenantal uh, trajectory there through Janak, and that Torah remains the Torah, um, not with a, some idea of being done away 
and not something, you know, where the later rabbis are saying, oh, well, 613 for us and seven for everybody else. And no, you're not really a son of Abraham. You're a son of Noah. You're a B'nai Noah. Um, you know, we're not getting into the noise on that. We're not buying those arguments. doesn't mean we won't read rabbinic works or we won't read works of, of theolog- Christian theolog- theologians from the past, but that we haven't, we, we're standing on what we believe is solid ground and we can interact with their ideas without budging that solid ground. Okay. Um, we have a question in the chat room. We'll touch on this very quickly and then uh, our time will be up. Yosef says, uh, it's the first time I've asked a question. What is your view of the temple? What do you think is the main theme in the Bible? Okay, so the reason that I can answer this quickly is because we just touched on it. The main theme in the Bible is, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God's uh, God's want to commune with uh, with his elect um, was uh, compromised uh, with the fall of man, and the entire theme of the Bible is getting the elect back into full communion with him. The temple is a direct sign of that, how God uh, cleanses his elect and how he does it once for all time through the shed blood of the Messiah Yeshua. And uh, this is seen throughout the continued sacrifices that go on in the temple. Uh, But then, of course, in the yearly cycle, there is one sacrifice, right, that that atones for the sins. That's the sin of, or the uh, sacrifice of Yom Kippur. And this is to show us that uh, you can sacrifice blood, uh, bulls and goats all you want, and it's going to do nothing for you. But there is the one sacrifice of the Messiah Yeshua uh, that is uh, the atoning work that brings man back into the, uh, the communion with God. All right. Uh, it's been a fun one, and I hope that everyone learns something. Uh, next week, who knows what's going to happen, but we are going to come back and we will uh, talk about something else. Uh, don't forget, forget to give us a call, 253-465-3205. The email address is 253-465-CHAGATORRESource.com. Uh, hey, guys, uh, we hope that this has been enlightening for you because we have tried to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah, because... Messiah matters. <laughs>